Tonight, the five-borough housing movement, fighting to transform empty Manhattan offices into affordable homes for New Yorkers. With Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul both on board, could this bold idea help solve New York's ongoing housing crisis? Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Schoen Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and the estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. New York is facing a massive housing crisis by virtually every measure imaginable. One of the leading proposals to tackle the problem is turning empty Manhattan office space into affordable homes for New Yorkers. Governor Kathy Hochul and Mayor Eric Adams both backed the idea, which could invigorate Midtown neighborhoods post-COVID and provide relief to outer borough residents being priced out of the city. So, too, does a diverse coalition of supporters from the business, labor, civic, and religious communities called the Five Borough Housing Movement, which plans to keep up the pressure on lawmakers to see this idea through. John Sanchez is the new group's executive director, and he joins us tonight to discuss the movement and the city's ongoing housing crisis. John, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jack. Let's start off by having you give us a sense of the scope of the housing problem in New York. The scope of the housing crisis in New York is massive. We need to build about 500,000 new units in the next decade to keep up with demand. Um, There's an immense shortage of housing. In the last decade, we created about 800,000 jobs, but only housing for about 200,000 people. There's an immense shortage. If you look at Manhattan, the median rent for an apartment in Manhattan is about $5,000. People are feeling the crunch, high inflation. And for this period, New York hasn't been a leader in building housing. And we've been a a, a national We've been falling short of the of building housing. We haven't been a national leader in building housing, and we need to return to that time that we were. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that when, as you mentioned, you know, wages going up, job explosions, and yet housing is not kept pace in New York? Why do you think? A lot of the housing and the rules that govern housing are, are laws that were from 60 years ago. New York City zoning resolution is from 1961 that allows buildings to be built or not built. We have state rules that limit how much housing can be in an apartment. For example, the FAR cap. So a lot of the outdated rules from the state and city are finally catching up to us. And because we were relying on infrastructure in the 20s and 30s, um, that's no longer sufficient. Give us a quick sense of your group and and who are some of the participants? Yes, our group is a diverse coalition of nonprofit organizations, labor groups, NAACP, the Grand Central Partnership, groups from around the city that want to see more housing being built and to make sure that there's an affordability component as well. And it's also important that this affordable housing is in Manhattan, south of 96th Street. 
neighborhoods. Why, why, why is that? Why is that important? Neighborhoods like mine in the Bronx, um, other parts in the city, they have mostly affordable housing projects that are being developed. But high opportunity neighborhoods south of 96th Street haven't done their fair share of providing affordable housing. And it's important that people of all incomes have the opportunity to live near transit, live near job hubs, live near the cultural amenities that are concentrated in Manhattan. That way we can have neighborhood income diversity. Let's talk a little bit about what I mentioned in the introduction. That is the the idea of let's take empty office space and let's convert it to, to housing space. We, we know we've heard that proposal floated in the past, but, but nothing has really happened. Why do you think now might be the opportune time to actually make that take place? Well, the post-pandemic environment changed everything. We're seeing that 50% of employees at major employers are going into the office on a hybrid schedule. 18% of major employees are expecting to shrink their real estate footprint. And there's an opportunity. Midtown has changed. And because of the dire housing crisis that we face, you know, having vacant offices be available for housing, it seems as a no-brainer. And interesting, in fact, the state and city have allowed office conversions. There was a program in the mid-90s to allow conversions south of uh, Murray Street in the financial district, and it yielded about 13,000 units. Um, we want to see an even bigger program that has some affordability tied to it. Now, I know from looking at these earlier proposals that didn't happen, one of the um, the biggest hurdles, if you will, was the notion of the cost of, of those conversions. Is that is that still a major hurdle now, or or does your group think that there are some abilities to make that more reasonable and more realistic? Well, actually, the cost of conversions is about fifty to one hundred and fifty dollars less per square foot than brand new construction. Um, for building owners facing vacancy, facing vacancies, um, it's actually um, more financially viable. Of course, it will be building specific. Some buildings have large floor plates and it'll be very expensive to convert. What we're seeking is to allow the state to give building owners the option. Right now, you're limited in whether you can convert or not based on the year your building was built or the location it is. I mentioned the introduction that both Governor Hochul and Mayor Adams seem to be on board with, with these proposals. Now, obviously, the devil's in the details. So we'd have to get to that point. But what about the state legislature and the city council? What's your sense as to whether or not they would also be on board with this proposal? What's encouraging about this issue is that it's uniting people across the ideological spectrum. We have city council members saying that Manhattan needs to do more and allow more housing. We have members of the state legislature also saying the same thing. And it's an issue that everyone can get around. We realize we have vacant spaces in Manhattan. Let's allow housing to be built there. And so far, the reception has been warm on all levels of government. And I think it's one of the few things in housing that's not controversial that has a broad base of support. You mentioned earlier that <clears throat> so many of these rules and regulations are antiquated you know, decades ago. Well, what are some of the most significant first steps that would have to be taken here to, to allow these types of conversions to take place with regard to rules and regulations? Yes, the first thing is changing the multiple dwelling law on the state level. Right now, it limits where offices can be built and what year they have to be to qualify. The second thing is a 1961 law called the FAR cap. 
and it limits the square footage of a building based on how big the lot is. This is a pre-Civil Rights Act era law in a time when New York was much different. A million less people were in New York. And a lot of buildings that New Yorkers herald for their ability to provide stability were grandfathered in. So for example, Manhattan Plaza in Hell's Kitchen, that couldn't be built today because of the FAR cap. Tracy Towers in the Bronx couldn't be built today because of the FAR cap. And there's no rhyme or reason for the state to limit New York City's ability to determine where does it make sense to have a dense building? Where does it not make sense? Right now, the hands of the city are tied by these state rules. If, in fact, the, those rules are able to be changed to allow this to move forward, uh, what's your estimation as to how many units we might be talking about here in, in terms of the, the developing, um, reconfiguring, repurposing, if you will, uh, the one space into the residential space? Yeah, when it comes to offices, both the governor and mayor's estimates are about 18 to 20,000 new apartments over the course of a decade. That provides homes for about 40,000 New Yorkers over the course of a decade. We realize not every building will convert to residential, but just giving the option is important. And 20,000 units in Manhattan, south of 96th Street, with about 4,000 of them being affordable, um, that almost um, is more than what Manhattan has produced in the past decade, just through offices. We're not even talking about new construction opportunities. If this were to happen, and, and we know one of the, the good news and the bad news about getting things done in, in New York is that it takes time. And, and yes. you know the good news is people are going to be very careful about it, make sure it's the right thing, it's being done right. Bad news is because of that, it's going to take time. Is there any type of a, a, a timeline here, any projection as to if everything falls into place, when we could see some of these conversions starting to take place? Well, and, and step one is to change the state rules. Right. Step two is to work with the city to see what are some regulations that could be lifted to allow this to speed up the process. But realistically, an office conversion can take about 12 to 18 months. If everything is aligned, we can see offices being converted to apartments in 2025. Now, I suspect you, you are seeing some skeptics out there and, and some people looking at this carefully. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if you were hearing some people saying, well, wait a minute, th this this sounds like it's just a front for for giving developers the opportunity to make a lot of money here. But what's your response to those skeptics? I mean, to those skeptics, I would hope that they realize we have more than 70,000 New Yorkers living in homeless shelters today, that the crisis is so dire that we need to look at every tool in the toolbox. We realize office conversions won't solve the housing crisis, but the ability to allow 20,000 new apartments in vacant office spaces is critical. And of course, building owners are trying to make sure that their investments are viable. They want to make sure that they don't go bankrupt, but they also want to provide housing. And I think the governor's insistence that there be some affordability um, through a tax incentive is important because a lot of the wealthiest neighborhoods in New York City have not done their fair share of providing affordable housing. It's causing pressure in the outer boroughs. When people can't afford Manhattan, they move to neighborhoods in the Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn. And it's important that every neighborhood does its fair share we can't have all of the other boroughs doing their fair share, and Manhattan is excluded from that process. 
What about that? The those neighborhoods, those high end neighborhoods, who, as you said, have not done their fair share. Um, you can anticipate there's going to be some pushback, I would imagine, from there. So, what's the plan as to how you would handle that? Well, in fact, I think the pendulum is swinging. Hmm. Community Board Four in Manhattan recently released a plan that showed specific locations where they could identify thousands of new units of housing, including affordable housing. We're really seeing a paradigm shift. The Manhattan Borough President released a report about two weeks ago detailing block by block locations in Manhattan that could allow for more housing, including affordable housing. So what we're seeing is that now there's a growing acceptance from elected leaders and even people on the ground that we need to do our fair share. But also, this is a desired goal to have diverse neighborhoods, both by income, race, and class. Last question for you. Um, if, if somebody might be listening to this conversation and saying, all right, but what happens if the business housing market comes back post-COVID? And now New York has, has done away with so much of their office space here. Won't that present a problem for us? What's the answer to that? Well, it's important to know the grand scale of the New York City office market. We're talking about 600 million square feet. Even if the 20,000 units are created, that will be less than 5% of the total office market in New York City. Um, so it's a small debt, um, but New York City has a great future and there will always be commercial um, space being developed. We just want to have the option to see some housing as a part of that. Well, John Sanchez, Executive Director of the Five Barrow Housing Movement, it's an interesting proposal, an interesting plan, and we'll keep in touch with you to see how it continues to move forward. John, thanks so much for spending some time with us. You be well. Thank you, Jack. You too. Wildfires, hurricanes, coastal floods. There is a whole generation of Americans who have grown up with a firsthand view of the devastating effects of climate change and extreme weather. Now that generation is a voting age, and more and more young people say that climate change is the most critical issue of our time. Our next guest is part of that generation. Vic Barrett was 12 years old when his home was hit by Hurricane Sandy, an event he remembers vividly. And since then, he's dedicated most of his young life to climate activism. Barrett has even spoken before the UN. And he's one of 21 young plaintiffs currently suing the U.S. government for failing to protect them from the impacts of climate change, alleging that it is in violation of their constitutional rights. And Vic Barrett joins us now as part of our ongoing Peril and Promise initiative reporting on the human stories of climate change and its solutions. Vic, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, I really want to get into uh, the notion of climate activism and being a youth-led movement. This seems like something that everybody should be invested in, but from your perspective, why would you say young people have a particularly unique interest? Yeah, I think young people have an inherent care about the climate crisis. Um, no generation before us has had such an existential threat. Uh, such a massive threat to their livelihoods, to their futures, to what can come next. Uh, most scientists agree that 350 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere is what can exist for a safe and stable climate. And even when I was born in 1999, we were already at 370 parts per million. Um, and today we're at 420 parts per million. So young people are being born every day into a world that's technically not really capable of sustaining 
uh, a healthy climate for them. So. That's, I was going to say, that's even interesting, just the way that you talk about it. You know what the uh, carbon monoxide levels are, parts per million. That's not a way that young people used to talk. So tell me about uh, how you at least see the movement growing, especially with so many young people now of voting age. Yeah, I think that the climate movement is really special because it's such an intersectional issue. Uh, climate change has to do with racial justice. Climate change has to do with gender justice, reproductive rights. It has to do with um, classism. And if people can afford to pick up baby formula or the food that they need, uh, climate change is a massive issue that deal that is a part of all the issues that people are talking about. Um, just like racial justice and gender justice and all the things that I mentioned, climate change is a symptom of a system that isn't necessarily working. So I'm wondering if you could expand on that just a little bit, because uh, a lot of people might hear, okay, but the climate literally affects everybody. So how is it uniquely detrimental when you talk about intersectional issues, as you just did, about racial justice, gender justice, um, et cetera? Explain how climate uniquely impacts vulnerable communities. Yeah, um, and I love your use of the word vulnerable because that's exactly where I was going to go with that. Um, climate change makes us all vulnerable. And there's communities that are especially vulnerable already um, due to whether it's over-policing, lack of food in their neighborhoods. Uh, climate change isn't just about this big picture issue. Like I talked about carbon, it's not just about that. It's also about, does your neighbor have air conditioning in a hotter, in a city that's getting hotter every year? Um, does your neighbor have access to transportation in a city that is getting more snow every year? Um, so I, I, it, it has a lot to do with already what people can access um, and climate change maybe even making it more difficult for them to access that um, or climate change creating more needs for them than they already are struggling with in the first place. Uh, a lot of the reason that I got involved with climate justice in particular um, was learning about in New York City how low-income housing uh, and housing that is predominantly lived in by people of color is often built in areas that are flood zones and that the city knows are flood zones and that are susceptible to flooding. So not just in New York City, but all over the country, there's already vulnerable communities being put on the front lines of an issue that we know is going to just get worse. Uh, so it, it's kind of looking at what what systems and policies and all of these things consider sacrifice zones. And it tends to be already vulnerable communities that live in those. Well, you sort of touched on that when you talked about uh, flood zones and which communities live there. I do want to point out that uh, you definitely identify as Black, Latinx, uh, queer, and obviously a young person. <laughs> but I want you to take us back to your experience. Um, your, I guess what would be your most traumatic experience with climate change? And that was through uh, her Superstorm Sandy when that hit New York City. Can you take us back to what your experience was when you were 12? Yeah, I, I just remember a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, um, not knowing what was going to happen next. Also just going home and watching the news and seeing people who were being impacted even more than I was in the moment. Um, I didn't get involved in climate work until I was 14 years old. So I got this opportunity to reflect on that experience and also meet young people who just like me, had to leave their whole homes behind, didn't have a home to live in anymore. Um, I think a lot of 
Hurricane Sandy was really eye-opening to me in terms of reflecting on it and then looking at the relationships that I was building and understanding that people who look just like me were impacted greatly, um, unimaginably. The same people that I was walking to the subway with after school or eating free pizza with at after school programs, um, you know, their whole lives were uprooted. So, Did you feel as though uh, this was a ubiquitous uh, feeling across other, uh, I keep I hate to keep saying young people, but across other um, neighborhoods, let's focus on New York City. Because again, as you just pointed out, this didn't impact all of New York in the same way. There were people who just had the luxury of just picking up and moving someplace else, whereas other people had to ride out the storm. So as you got involved in this particularly youth-based climate action, did you feel as though everyone was on the same page? Um, honestly, when I first got involved, the first campaign that I worked on when I was 14 was focused on climate education, actually, and trying to mandate climate education in New York City public schools, because me and my peers that were in this, you know, particular after-school program learning about human rights, learning about how to run a campaign, how to meet people, um, we all kind of collectively were aware of the fact that nothing is going to change unless young people know what the issue is. So I feel like when I first started the work, I definitely felt kind of a gap between young people actually knowing how climate change impacts them, other than kind of the same images that were fed constantly of uh, trees getting cut down and polar bears not, you know, polar bears not being able to move across the ice. We have these general images of climate change that young people at that time, I feel like, got to see a lot. Um, and I try to make it a mission to kind of teach about the hum how it impacts humans um, at the end of the day. And I think that that narrative has gotten more uh, understood and common. But when I first started, it didn't feel as understood by young people. Well, uh, let's uh, put young people aside and talk about us older generations. Um, what has been your experience in the level of understanding and more importantly, understanding the urgency? Because while there seems to be a lot of passion uh, on the part of you know, your peers, your contemporaries, uh, a lot of people who are in charge of governments who are actually making the decisions might not seem to have that same level of urgency, critical urgency that a lot we see a lot of youth express. Yeah, um, I think that a lot of decision makers maybe don't see the, don't understand the implications in the same way that young people do. I think that Gen Z in particular, people my age, I'm 23 and younger and a little bit older, have kind of an inherent empathy uh, and an inherent consideration for other people's lived experience and situations. Uh, that maybe older generations don't possess in the same way because they weren't born into the same world that we have been born into. Um, I think that there's definitely a lack of acknowledgement about the justice part of climate change and about the the human imp the impacts that climate change has on human beings. Uh, because I think that we've been talking about climate change in a two distant abstract way for a really long time um politicians and, and this is something that comes up in the lawsuit that i'm a part of politicians presidents have known going back to the 1950s 1960s have been briefed on climate science and the fact that a fossil fuel infrastructure was going to lead to more climate change and still decided to prioritize profit over posterity and what was going to come next 
Uh, so I think that a lot of politicians are working at a, at a different baseline than young people are when we talk about the issue of climate change. Uh, the average lawmaker in the United States tends to be above 50 years old. Um, and it, that's a different lived experience than someone who's 23. Somebody who was born in the 50s or 60s is going to have an inherently different outlook than someone who was born in 1999. Um, or like I said before, someone who was born when the earth was capable of sustaining their way of living uh, is going to have a harder time understanding an entire generation that was born in a world that wasn't really capable of sustaining their future and their life and livelihood. Well, we only have about a minute left, but I do want to ask. So we, of course, are in a midterm election year. Uh, primaries are coming up, et cetera. So how do you, uh, as you know, a climate activist and a young person, how do you and how do you motivate other people to increase the pressure on those uh, lawmakers to ensure that they are taking this seriously and making some of the correct decisions to make the planet more sustainable and less chaotic weather-wise? Yeah, absolutely. I think it comes down to um, letting your local politicians, reminding them that they're accountable to you, reminding them that, they're your con that you're their constituent, whether you can vote for them or not, reminding them that their job is to be accountable to you as a voter um, and also just as a citizen. So I, I think that that's a huge part of it. And also sometimes working in legislative politics or trying to engage in the legislative system can be weary and disheartening. So also remembering that there are systems outside of that, uh, just mutual aid, just checking on your neighbor, um, just looking at your neighborhood and seeing where people need things uh, is really empowering uh, in a system that tends to be pretty disempowering. So I would say that, you know, I, I vote every year. I vote in midterm elections, local elections, presidential elections, all of them. Um, and that's really important. A lot of people fought really hard to make sure that I could even do that. So if I just had to fill out some paperwork and show up somewhere, I'm going to. And then also after you do that, you know, maybe show up to your local food pantry, um, maybe check in on the elderly person that lives in your building. Um, you know, just pay attention to people that you tend to not pay attention to, I think is one of the best ways to navigate the world that we're in right now, as well as um, doing what you can in a system that doesn't let you do much. <laughs> All right, well, Vic, uh, we're gonna have to leave it there, but I wanna thank you so much for joining us and for some very uh, useful words of wisdom. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us and for your continued work in climate activism. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into Metro Focus. Take our award-winning program wherever you go with Metro Focus the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts so you never miss an episode or simply ask your smart speaker to play Metro Focus the podcast. Also available at wliw.org/radio and on the NPR1 app.